Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Ah, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're alive. We thank you that you're active. We thank you that death could not hold you. As we consider your story today, I pray that you open the eyes of the hearts for each person in this room, that wherever they are in their understanding of you, that you would give them a next step, that you would speak truth to them, speak life to them, and that you alone would be glorified in our hearts. It's in your name we pray, amen. So uh, if you're on our email list, you got an email from me this week. Uh, if you're not on our email list, fill out that connection card and then you will get an email from me. Um, and I basically said that this was a message that I was really excited about. This is a message today that I've been sensing in my bones for a while. Not only for this community, um, but also for wider society. So I think wherever you are, whether you call Jesus Lord or whether you don't, um, today I think God has something to say to you. Notice I, I'm not sitting on a stool today. I figured since Jesus could get out of the tomb and stand up, I guess I could do the same. Um, but it felt like one of those that I needed to be standing for. Um, it felt like something that God wants to say to us. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, with the New Testament, there are four different accounts, four stories of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is already an interesting fact. Because you think if you're the early church, why would you have four authoritative accounts? Why not just one? Well, evidently they thought four made the story richer, made it more robust. Maybe like harmonies, right? Chords in a harmony. They're not contradicting one another. There's no dissonance in them. Uh, one note is beautiful, but four notes working together makes something even more beautiful. And if you've been to church before on Easter Sunday where we talk about when God raised Jesus from the dead, generally you've heard the resurrection account of Matthew, Luke, and John. Those are really widely read resurrection accounts, but you probably, maybe you have, but you probably haven't heard Mark's account. And today I want to consider Mark's account. And there's a reason why, and we'll get into it, he isn't read often on this day. A little background on Mark's gospel. He opens with a bold statement. The very first sentence in his book is, this is the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Bold statement. He's not, he's not hiding the punchline. He's like, this is what I'm about to tell you, okay? This is the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the savior of Israel, the savior of the world, and is the son of God who came in human form. And then he proceeds to tell the story. In 16 chapters, he proceeds to tell the story of this Jesus. And if you're coming to it with fresh eyes for the first time, you're gonna notice some things. It's gonna be shocking in places. It jumps out of the gate, first of all. Mark is king of this word, it's Greek word, euthus. You say euthus. Yes, euthus means immediately or at once. Mark uses that word 40 times in 16 chapters and 10 times in the very first chapter. So when you come to the story, you open it up and at first, like immediately, immediately, you're seeing the word euthus, euthus. Jesus did this. Then immediately, Jesus did this. And then at once, this happened. There's this sense of urgency. There's this frenetic pace 
Like Jesus is on a mission. And what's he doing? Well, for those first eight chapters, the first half of the book, he's really not teaching a lot. This guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is healing. He's a miracle worker. For the first eight chapters, he's constantly, he, he gets to a man with a withered hand and he heals him. There's a man with leprosy and he touches him and he heals him. Um, he really appears, if you come to it for the first time, very invincible. These first eight chapters, Jesus is, an, is unstoppable. And there's such urgency, such immediacy, such power. But then about the halfway mark, something changes in Mark's story. The halfway mark, halfway mark, Jesus, he still heals, but that doesn't become the primary focus. The second half of the book, Jesus starts teaching. And he really focuses on one aspect of teaching. He starts talking about his imminent death, that he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be resurrected. And if you're coming to the story for the first time, in the same way that the first eight chapters would be shocking because he has such power, the second half of the book would also be equally shocking because why would he be talking about his death and his suffering? But he seems to suggest that suffering is part and parcel of what his mission was, why he came and what characterizes his followers. And if you're a Jewish reader or a Jewish listener in the first century and you hear this guy who you think is your savior talk about his death, you're gonna be a little thrown off, but it won't be completely out of left field because you have in recent memory, another guy, another martyr of the faith, the Maccabees, Judas Maccabees and his brothers. Uh, maybe you know this story. This is actually the birth of Hanukkah. So about around 200 years before the time of Jesus, around 150 BC-ish in that in that. Uh, in that time, uh, the king of the Greek empire, the Seleucids, uh, essentially he made a declaration that the Jews were no longer allowed to practice their religion. And Judas Maccabees and his brothers basically said, heck no, we're not doing that. And so essentially they rebelled. They violently revolted against the Greeks and they, they won their independence for a period of time and they were free. Ultimately they were caught, they were um, overpowered and they were put to death. And there's an interesting story in the book of 2 Maccabees, which details how they were executed. And I say it's interesting because it's a very graphic tale of, of very graphic language of how they were put to death. But, but the, the author recounts as they're being put to death that they each have like this two paragraph monologue to the king. It's like a la William Wallace, you know, you may take our lives, but you'll never take our freedom, right? So they're being dismembered and they're being graphically mutilated, but they still have the wherewithal and the presence of mind to deliver a two paragraph monologue saying, but my God will avenge me. So if you're a Jew and you hear Jesus, who's sort of a parallel to Judas Maccabees, talk about his upcoming death, you're gonna think it's gonna look like that. It's gonna be a glorious death. But then when you get to the part where he is crucified, you realize and it's not a glorious death. It's actually a very inglorious death. Jesus is unjustly handed over, and yet he never speaks up. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't protest. He doesn't fight back. He dies so weakly, so weak, 
like a lamb that has led to the slaughter. And you're so confused. How could this be the Savior dying in such a horrible, weak fashion? In fact, Mark does say that Jesus talks on the cross. But whereas Judas Maccabees says, my God will avenge me, Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even on the cross, he can't die with glory. He dies with this question of seeming abandonment. And you're left as a reader of Mark's gospel saying, what is going on? You're shocked by the Jesus he presents. His story started with such promise and it ends with such disappointment. And then you get to the very final paragraph of Mark's story. This is, I mean, hopefully the, the, the fortunes are reversed. The resurrection account. And you're like, okay, well, what's happening? And this is how Mark ends. This is the last words of Mark's story. This is how he ends it. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. And they were terrified. Don't be terrified, he said. You were looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Now go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's how Mark ends his story. And now you might be thinking, whoa, my, my Bible has a bit more. Well, interestingly enough, the earliest manuscripts we have of Mark's gospel stop right here. If you have a sense in your spirit of like, man, this was a really unsatisfying ending. Well, you're not alone. The church a couple hundred years later had that same sense of this is not a satisfying ending. And so they wrote an alternative ending. And that doesn't make it untrue. It just means that they, were, they didn't understand what Mark was doing. But in the earliest accounts of Mark's gospel, this is how he ends it. The women went out and fled from the tomb for terror and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's ironic because throughout Mark's story, Jesus is constantly healing people and they are astonished and he tells them, don't tell anyone. And they do. <laughs> and then here at the very end, the angel or the man in white tells the women, go tell his disciples and they don't. We just can't get it right, it seems like. But the very last line, the very last two words in the story is, for they were afraid. For they were afraid. For they were afraid. It kind of sums up the entire story Mark's trying to tell. That if you actually take Jesus of Nazareth seriously as a historical figure, you should be very afraid. Not afraid that he's going to hurt you. You should just be very afraid because this is someone who is unlike anyone else that the world has ever seen in so many different ways. 
And if you're considering him, looking at him, it should make your heart pound and you should be terrified. Now this, this trope of being gripped with fear and astonishment at the stuff that Jesus does and the stuff that happens through him and his teaching, it's not new. It's not just at the very end of the story. It's throughout the entire story. So in Mark 4, there's this really uh, fascinating story where the disciples are on a boat and there's a windstorm. There's a windstorm that sort of starts up and Jesus is asleep and they go and wake up Jesus and they say, Jesus, we're going to drown. Do you not care? And he comes out on the deck of the boat and he says to the wind, he just looks out to the wind and he goes, peace, be still. And the wind stops. The wind just stops. And we're told that the disciples feared with a great fear. They were terrified. Wouldn't you be if suddenly there's a storm and it stops because he can control the elements? They were terrified. Just a chapter later, Jesus and his disciples enter the region of the Gerasenes. And there's a man who's full of demons and he lives out on the outskirts of town. He's a nuisance to the town. Jesus engages him in conversation and he ends up casting the demons out and he casts them into a, a herd of pigs and the people who were watching the pigs, uh, they are so freaked out that they go to the town and the town comes out to Jesus on the outskirts. And when they come to him, they see the man who they've known. He's the town madman and he's always crazy. You avoid him, but they see him in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. And the people of the town, Jesus just solved a problem for them, but they are so afraid, they're so scared, they drive Jesus away. They actually, it says they beg him to leave them. Anyone else relate with that? You know you got issues, but you're so afraid of what it might look like to live without those issues that you're like, nah, Jesus, just don't come close. They drive him away. We got issues, but we can make sense of our life. A chapter later, Jesus walks on the water to the disciples in the boat and they are terrified. The disciples are constantly painted as being afraid, as not understanding, as being terrified. And it wasn't that Jesus had powers, it was how he used them. I know it's a little different for us because us moderns, us post-enlightenment people, we sort of doubt the supernatural. But if you were living in the first century, you didn't doubt the supernatural. You saw the powers all the time. It wasn't that Jesus had powers. It was the way he used them. He didn't use them for himself. He used them for the least of these. He used them for the marginalized. He used them for the down and out. And then when he did use them, he told people, don't say anything. Don't say anything about it. And that is terrifying because he had such power and yet he didn't utilize it as we would expect someone with that power to do. I wanna consider one story from Mark chapter five because it parallels with the resurrection account today to sort of get this idea of being afraid at Jesus and by Jesus. There's a story in Mark chapter five where this ruler, this Jewish ruler, like a pastor basically, um, named Jairus, he comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter is dying. Will you come with me? She's dying, but if you put your hand on her, you can heal her and she will live. And so he does. He starts going with Jairus to his house. And on the way, a messenger comes from Jairus' home and says, hey, don't worry about it. Your daughter just died. Your daughter's dead. Your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. 
And Jesus looks at Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Which is a pretty presumptuous thing to say, isn't it? Which is why when, when I talk to people who are not followers of Jesus, one of the common reasons, this might be you out here, but one of the common reasons is, I think Jesus is a good teacher, but I don't think he's sort of this divine figure. But if you actually take Jesus seriously, the story is full of stuff like this. Like imagine, imagine that rumors started circulating about me that I had powers over diseases and I had powers over the elements. And you wanna say I'm just a good teacher, but then I actually say to someone who just lost their child, don't be afraid, just believe. How audacious. You probably wanna punch me in my face, right? Unless I'm speaking the truth. Unless I can say, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, that brings up an interesting point for us in translation. The Greek word for believe is pastuo, pastuo, which we translate, I believe. But when we talk about belief in the modern sense, it's sort of been reduced to what? To just our thoughts. When I believe something, I think things about it, right? It's, I, my beliefs are what I think about whatever, the world. But in the ancient context, that wasn't the case. Belief was more like trust. It was embodied. Anyone ever done a trust fall in summer camps growing up? Yeah, you know trust falls, right? So you stand on this ledge, if you've never done it, you stand on this high ledge and there's a group of people behind you and they have their arms out like this. And they have to trust that they're gonna catch you. And so you cross your arms and you say, I'm about to fall. And they're like, you go ahead and fall. And, and you know, you're sort of, you're going through it in your, your head. You're like, okay, this is how much I weigh. This is how many people are down there. These are their arms. Okay, like I can see that you're making a pro and con list. They should catch me. I believe that they're gonna catch me, right? And you think those thoughts, but you don't trust that they're gonna catch you until when? Until you fall. You don't actually pastuo that they're gonna catch you until you actually fall. Which means to trust in the, in the biblical sense, to believe in the biblical sense is to affirm two contradicting things. To affirm that the fear is real. That the cause of the fear is real. That the report that Jairus just heard, his daughter is dead, is real. But somehow, in some mysterious way, Jesus is more real. I don't know. But to trust him, to believe him is to say he's more real. And not just to let that sit at the level of what I think, but to take steps and to continue going with Jesus to his household where his daughter lies dead. That is what it looks like. It's not to have all your thoughts in order. It's not to have um, no doubt in your body. It's to say that this fear feels real. But he said, don't be afraid, just believe. And therefore somehow his words are more true. And I'm walking with him. So they get to the house, Jairus and um, Jesus, they get to the house and they're told, uh, they see a bunch of people, they're wailing, they're mourning, tons of mourners in the house. And Jesus looks at them and goes, why are you wailing? Why are you mourning? She's not dead. She just sleeps. Which is even more audacious and changes the context even more because now Jesus is actually contradicting the report that they heard. 
These people, you would think they know what a dead body looks like, right? They know when a child is still hanging on to life and when the child is dead. They're, they're faced with it all the time. And in their grief, Jesus says, actually, she's not dead. She just sleeps. You're like, are you kidding me, Jesus? You're saying my senses betray me? It looks dead. But you're saying she just sleeps? Anyone else looked out upon a world and said it looks really dead? Anyone else looked out upon your own life and your addictions and said, I look really dead? Anyone else looked out upon a relationship and goes, it looks so dead? And the word of the gospel, the word of the empty tomb is it's not dead just sleeps. It's not dead. I know what it looks like. It's not dead. Don't be afraid. Believe, that is to say, trust, that is to say, keep walking with me. But Jesus, look, look at the hatred. Look at the hatred of this world. Look at the violence in this world. Look at, look at the rates of cancer. Look at the shootings. Look, it looks dead. It looks so broken and dead. It's not dead. It's not dead. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And we're told in the story that when he says that, they all laugh at him. And actually in the, in the Greek, the word isn't just like laugh. It's, it's mockery. It's scorn. It's cynicism. And if there's one word, if there's one symptom that could sum up us in the West in the 21st century, it would be that. We are cynical people. We are cynical. We are people who have tasted something good and then we lost it and then we got world weary and we keep seeing the brokenness. And if anything over these last couple years has proven to us, we're just heavy, right? Our hearts are heavy and we're cynical. It's not that we don't want to believe, we do. It's just so hard. It's so hard to actually believe Jesus. And so they laugh at him, they mock him. And Jesus takes his three closest disciples and the child's parents and he goes upstairs with them. And then he grabs the little girl by her hand and says, little girl, get up. And she does. Immediately, Euthus, she gets up and she walks around. And then we have this amazing description of the other people in the room. We're told that they were existe me, extase, megale. I won't make you say that one. Existe me, extase, megale. You might recognize two words there. Megale, the Greek mega, very, great, big. But extase is what I want to focus on. Extase, it's the word that where we get ecstasy. Ecstasy. Now that word has also evolved over time. In the ancient sense, yeah, yeah, it's definitely evolved. <laughs> In the ancient sense, to experience ecstasy was to have your mind thrown out of its normal state. It's, it's to change the framework of what is possible. Up becomes down. The fundamental foundation of your reality is altered. The best way I can describe the ancient sense of ecstasy is when you receive a bit of news, like, like the tragic example of say you receive news that one of your loved ones has just passed away, right? I, about a year and a half ago, two years ago now, man, it's crazy. Um, my cousin, 
It was very young. He passed away tragically. And I still remember when I got that phone call. And my first reaction was what? I, I couldn't process it, right? My hands started sweating. My heart started beating fast. I felt like I was going to faint. That's ecstasy. I didn't know how to process. The fundamental reality of my life had just been turned on its head. When you receive that news, whether it's grief or beauty, when you're proposed to or when you're the one doing the proposing, you start feeling like you're going to faint. You don't know how to process because your world is about to change or it has changed. And when Jesus took that little girl by the hand and said, little girl, get up, all five of them lost their ever-loving minds. <laughs> they lost it. That is the reaction that accompanies those who are reading the story of Jesus seriously. You should be losing your mind because he doesn't do things the way you think he would. Ex Existing, ecstasy is the appropriate reaction learning to see the world that Jesus sees. So the women show up at the tomb to anoint the dead body of one they love. And then they meet a man in white. We're not even told he's an angel, but they meet a man in white. And imagine, you're, you're going to this one you love to anoint his body. He's dead. And suddenly the tomb is, is open. The stone's not there. And you walk in and there's a man in a white robe and goes, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. He's not here. He's been raised. And he's gone ahead of you into Galilee. That's where you'll find them. Now go tell. And it says they left trembling and bewildered. But the word for bewildered, you might see what's coming. Ecstasis. Trembling and ecstasy seized them. They lost their minds. They didn't know how to process this. This was something they had never seen. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What's going on? We're looking at a world. God is looking at the same world. We say this world looks dead. God says, it's not dead. Don't be afraid. Look again. I think Mark is the evangelist for us in the 21st century. And here's why. When you look at the chronology, if you go to the next slide, I think it's the next slide. You look at the chronology. That's my, uh, that's my high tech map or, or timeline right there. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, Jesus lived in around 30, 33 AD. That's when the events happened about him. He died. And then Mark's gospel, most scholars hold to be the earliest one written, was written around 70 AD. That's 40 years of time that has passed. Well, what's happened in those 40 years? Well, quite simple, the church has been born. So to give you a basic timeline, Jesus was resurrected. We know that the women told the disciples because we have in Matthew and Luke's uh, gospel, the, the examples, the stories when, he tell, when the women tell the disciples. We know that Jesus showed up to uh, the disciples and to other people. We have from Paul's letters that Jesus showed up. And so what's going on is that over the course of the next 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus is showing up and he's sort of confirming, I'm alive, I'm alive. And then he ascends, he goes to be with the Father. And for the next 40 years, the church starts being born. People start encountering the Spirit of God. And as they encounter the Spirit of God, they're told, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. And so they, they hear that and they encounter the Spirit of God and churches are proliferating over those 40 years. But then two things happen, right? Whereas at first there was such life, 
There was such joy. They saw life. Two things start happening when Mark writes his gospel. One, Nero comes into power. <laughs> Anyone know Emperor Nero in Rome? And there's this famous example where he burned down part of Rome because he wanted to extend his palace. But since people didn't know what to make of the Christians, he blamed it on the Christians. And so Christians are starting to be persecuted. Christians are starting to be executed. Even the, the original leaders of the church are starting to be executed. And so the first church is starting to lose its faith. They're wondering, oh shoot, were we mistaken? Who is this Jesus? Were we wrong? And the second thing that's happened is that the first church believed that Jesus was gonna come back in their lifetime. And these original leaders are starting to die. And now they're saying, oh shoot, we might be here longer. So their faith, their ground of their faith is being shaken. And so Mark reasons, up until this point, they had no authoritative account of Jesus's life. Mark reasoned, we might be here a while, we need something to aid these first believers in the first century. And so he writes his text. He writes this story of Jesus to aid the believers whose strength was beginning to fail them. And imagine, imagine you're a first century Christian, right? Imagine you've heard the stories of Jesus, you've encountered, you've had a, a radical spiritual phenomenon and you're told that's God, that's Jesus who was raised to life. And you had such life and such faith at first, but then as time has gone on, that's starting to, to fade, starting to wane. And you're wondering, oh shoot, what, what's going on? Was I mistaken? Can I still trust him? And then you receive this, this book, the first one of its kind that details the story of Jesus's life. And you read it through and here's what you're gonna find. The first half of the book, you're gonna be ecstatic and hopeful because he is, as you've heard, he heals. There are so many miracles in his name. And you're like, I know who this is. This is who I put my faith in. But then you get to the second half of the book as he leads toward his death. And you're like, whoa, this isn't as I expected. You become afraid. You become even more afraid when you see how he dies because he dies so ingloriously. And the question comes, well, what's gonna happen now? And when you read the account of his resurrection, it's as if Mark is saying, now you have a choice to make. Who do you say he is? No resurrection sightings for you this year. All you get is the report of the angel, the feeling of fear, and the question put before you, who do you say he is? Are you afraid? Don't be. Believe. There's a, there's a really powerful scene in the very middle of Mark's gospel after Jesus is at the top of his game and he's walking through this town and he sees a bunch of idols, like real idols. And he asks his disciples, hey, who are people saying I am? And they go, well, some say you're this guy, some say you're that one. And then he looks at them and he goes, but who do you say I am? And they go, you're, you're the savior, you're the Lord. And then we go through the second half and that starts to wane and starts to fade. And it's as if Mark is artistically structuring his story to end with that question again. When Jesus is healing in your life, 
When Jesus has come upon you, you know exactly who he is. But what happens when it gets hard? What happens when the causes of faith fade? What happens when you think what God is doing in your life doesn't happen that way? What happens when it all still looks dead? Jesus and Mark by this story is saying, now, who do you say he is? Don't be afraid. Just believe. He's not dead. I think Mark's gospel is for us in the West in the 21st century. Because I know many of you in this room. I love all of you, even if I don't know you. But I know many of you have struggled with faith. I know many of you have encountered life at some point. You've encountered Jesus and you've seen it so clearly and so truly. You know who he is. But then the second half of the story began. And it got hard and it became something that you weren't prepared for, you weren't looking for, you weren't ready for. And that's why Mark's account of the resurrection is for us today. Because the question still presented to each and every one of us here is, what now? Who do you say he is now? At Hope Brooklyn, we've created this family where no question is off limits, where we can come and be angry with God. We can say, look, God, it's dead. It appears dead. I feel dead. And the word of Jesus to you today is quite simply, you're not dead. You're alive. Do you believe? The word of Jesus is you're not dead. I know what it looks like, but hear the report. He came out of the tomb. Do you believe Many of you may never have um, encountered Jesus. Many of you might be wondering, who is this guy? And when you feel this pounding in your heart, you feel this ecstasy. You feel this sense of you're afraid of this guy, but you're keeping him at arm's length. What? What's separating you? Well, it's probably the church. It's probably Christians. You're like, look at these hypocritical Christians. Look at the way the church has acted here. But if you clear those away and you just look at Jesus, you know you're terrified by what you see because he is not as you would expect. And the word is the same to you as well. Don't be afraid, just believe. There's a burning in all of our souls. Look again, look, the tomb's empty. The tomb's empty. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is today? I wanna invite the worship team back up. I invite everyone to stand to their feet. If you feel comfortable, would you put your hands out in front of you like this, palms up? Historically, the church has always lifted their hands and usually palms up. And the reason why, it's a symbol of dependence. It's a sign that we can't do this on our own. It's a sign that we need someone. And here's the thing, when you remember Jairus, he got the report that his daughter was dead. She's dead. And Jesus looked at him and said, don't be afraid, just believe. His daughter's not alive yet. She's dead. Just believe, which means what? It means he has to continue walking to his house before he gets to see the miracle. When the women get to the tomb and it's empty, the report is he's not here. He's been raised. 
which means what? It means they have to go in faith that he's alive before they see the miracle. And for everyone in this room whose heart is weighed down, who's weary by this world, who's experienced life once, but now they're not so sure, the invitation for you today is to take a step of faith, to once again choose to trust this God who says, don't be afraid, I am with you, believe. Jesus, Holy Spirit, will you just come right now? Minister to these people. Whatever's on your heart, will you offer it to him? Don't hide it from him. Tell him you're lonely. Tell him you're afraid. Tell him you're angry. Even if you're here and you don't know how to pray to God, just address him. Tell him you're hurt. And then hear the words of the resurrected Jesus. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Believe. Take a step. I'm sorry, but you don't get faith before action. You have to take a step first and then faith flows through you. And so today, as we worship you, Lord, with everything that's in our heart, help us to push through it and to turn our hands towards you and say, we believe in you. We believe in you. We believe in you. Yes, it looks dead, but you say it's alive. Help us to see the life again. Only you can do it, Holy Spirit. Minister to your people here. Touch them, fill them. Reveal yourself to them. Reveal yourself to them. Will you sing this with us together as a community? Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.